From True Africa, I'm Claude Winitsky, and this is Limitless. So um, Fismas Fall taught me a lot. It taught me the importance of confidence. You know, you don't have to be a politician to be a leader. We need a new way of embodying citizenship. Welcome to Limitless, the podcast that asks the questions that matter for Africa. We're looking for African solutions to African problems. In each episode, we're asking three guests one question that matters to Africans. And, no surprise, they don't always agree. The Limitless podcast is supported by the U.S. Department of State and the Scene Fire Foundation. It's easy to get cynical about politics, to say they're all the same and things will never change. But that's not how you build a better world. In this episode, I speak to three young political activists who are trying to make a difference. First up is Busi Siwe Seabe. She was one of the leaders of the Fees Must Fall student protest in 2015. She was 20 years old and attending Wits University in Johannesburg at the time. Fees Must Fall was a campaign to stop the increases in student fees and to increase government funding of universities. It grew into a huge political movement. Busi Siwe was shot at and ended up in hospital after a stun grenade landed next to her. Fees Must Fall grew out of a set of protests about statues, in particular the statue of the British imperialist Cecil Rhodes, which used to stand at the University of Cape Town. Busi Siwe started off by telling me what happened after the activist Chumani Maxwele pelted the statue with human excrement. It was just like a very big wake-up call because it started an internal conversation amongst Black South Africans around the history of apartheid, the history of suppression and repression. And from then on into that conversation, we started speaking about how we don't have access to higher education and getting into university in the first place to learn about the history of our country, to learn about apartheid, to learn about, you know, struggle heroes that a lot of people don't know about. So then we looked at the fact that our fees were also increasing. So uh, our student fees were also increasing in that particular year. And we realized that the more fees continue to increase, the less access that Black people, particularly Black women, um, and the LGBTQI community would have to higher education. And that's where right. Fees Must Fall right. comes to play. And it was born from that moment of realizing that we are the masters of our own destiny. And we have a very famous saying in the Fees Must Fall movement, and that is every generation has its generational obligation. It's either you betray it or you fulfill it. And we understood our generational obligation to be accessing free quality decolonized education. And what have you learned since you started this movement in 2015? There's, I mean, there's just like so many lessons, right? One, I, I have definitely learned that the state will always prioritize itself. And it will always prioritize capital. It will always prioritize a neoliberal agenda. Um, I've also learned that what is projected in the media is not necessarily what happens on the ground. So in leading the Fees Must Fall movement and in participating in Fees Must Fall, I got to understand the use of propaganda media. 
I got to understand the physical response, the, the militant or violent response that, you know, citizens can be met with by the state. I got to understand how politicians can use, you know, chapter nine institutions that are there to safeguard and to protect the people against the people themselves. So I got to learn also how difficult it is as a black woman in South Africa, in Africa, to lead a movement of over 10 people, right? I think when you get over 10 and you go into thousands and millions, as we did in the Fees Must Fall movement, you begin to understand um, how important the conversation around patriarchy and sexism is in movements as well. So um, you also begin to understand the, the dire need and the importance for decolonization to take what we have considered to be the norm and to change it to fit our current positioning and our current, you know, stance. So um, Fismas Fall taught me a lot. It taught me the importance of confidence as a young black woman in South Africa. Um, It also challenged a lot of the principles that I thought I understood. It challenged a lot of the ideals that I grew up with. So one of those ideals that it challenged was this ideal of a rainbow nation. So South Africa is very big on this notion of a rainbow nation since, um, you know, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. I mean, before fees must fall, I was a big Mandelaist. I loved Nelson Mandela. During fees must fall and after, I can tell you right now, I'm ready to write an entire dissertation on how Nelson Mandela is not the man or the hero that we think he is. Wow, just based wow. that's on, a big statement. Absolutely, fees must fall shattered a lot of my, I, I would say, childish, um, you know thoughts and aspirations and it grounded me in the reality that is South Africa today, the South Africa where, you know, um, women are subjected to gender-based violence, the South Africa where women are killed brutally every day. It, yeah, it's, it's a lot. The next guest is Sheikh Fowl, a Senegalese activist and journalist who started an election monitoring platform in 2012 It was meant to stop election fraud in the presidential election. The same process has since been used in countries like Benin, Guinea, and Cote d'Ivoire, and was used again in the 2019 election in Senegal. He started off by telling Sinatu Saka, one of our Limitless producers, about how he started the platform Sunu. Sunu 2012. S-U-N-U 2012. It's a citizen initiative I put in place in Senegal in 2012 with a network of bloggers to monitor the election. It was the first time that such an initiative saw the light of day, that is to use social media to monitor the electoral process. Social media is usually used to build networks, make friends, widen networks, find jobs, but they hadn't been used to monitor elections through citizen engagement by putting in place a mechanism for observation, collecting data, and diffusing information. We were about 100. We were equipped with mobiles, and we were vigils for the democratic process by monitoring voting booths and collecting data in real time and calculating results via a special platform. We enrolled citizens into becoming election monitors. It was supported by everyone, parents, grandparents, professors, teachers. Those who weren't part of our organization saw how it caught on as we spread the 
results on social media and bolstered information coming from traditional sources such as radio and television. This pushed many to leave their homes, take photos of results in voting booths and support the results by publishing it. The legal framework allowed us to spread results as soon as they are announced, but it isn't possible to do it in some other places, even though there was a lot of demand. In these countries, there are certain administrative organizations that take sole responsibility for publishing and announcing results. We have a very young continent and very old leaders. How do you explain that? It's not surprising if you look at circumstances, like some of our constitutions, which only allow people to run for president if they are over 50 years old, or others where you have to be over 60 years old. And the campaign deposits are often very costly, and that pushes some to launder money or make pacts with businessmen. The political apparatus is also a factor. You have to have a party have elected representatives and be present in a certain number of provinces or departments. This contributes to the divides and the polarization between elected politicians and civil society. There is a huge divide between leaders and the voters. How can we understand democracy and its demands? How can we aspire to better governance, transparency and freedom of expression? We as a society don't understand it in the same way as our leaders. For this to change, we need a new form of citizenship, a new way of embodying citizenship. This can only start at the bottom through education and a commitment to social transformation so that these people can take on power with a new way of doing things, a new mindset, a new relationship with administration and power. My third guest is Kemo Fati an environmental activist from the Gambia. Camo first became interested in political activism because of migration. He witnessed many young people trying to leave the Gambia for Europe. His brother was one of those who left. So Camo, why did you choose to get involved in politics? My story is one that I think is uh, coming from, you know, incidents that happened to me through my life journey, you know. In Africa here, we have seen how the past decade has been for us. And, you know, we are even having a gloomy one looking at what the next decade is going to be. There has been a brain drain from this continent. It struck me when it came into my own household, when my own brother had taken the back way to Europe. And all of these things are motivated by the, the, the lack of dignity that people are living in. Young people jump in these boats across Europe to make a better life for themselves. Because, you know, in our country, we use the dalasi as a currency. $50 is just equivalent of one euro. So in the end, you know, most of the people who were living comfortably and have, you know, dignities restored are people who have, you know, people out there sending remittances to them. So this has become the dream of most of the people. And I thought to myself, we can't be living comfortably like this because climate continues to take the only factor of production that we have, which is our lands. People get poorer and poorer and more and more they find ways to get out of this. So families will sell their inheritance to send their children to Europe so that they can you know, get better lives. And even if they don't make it, so most of them are stuck in Libya. They can't come back home because of shame. So as a young person, I didn't feel comfortable, you know. 
I said, you know, maybe my brother has, has to be the last person who will actually jump on these votes. Because the irony is that hundreds of years ago, when the Europeans were at the shores of the Atlantic, they had to pack able-bodied African-Americans like myself by force to work in the plantations. But today, that is not happening. History is repeating itself in a different way. Only that this time, we are doing it voluntarily on our own, jumping into much more harsh conditions than even those people because they needed us to stay alive. But this time around, their life is just put to risk. Sometimes they are even left at sea with no rescue. So I see these things, and I want to actually change things about this. When I started advocating for this, this is the basic reason why I got into activism. Now it's here, eight years ago now, since my brother left. So I went into activism, you know, try to speak to these people, find out what's the reason. So when it comes to migration, I looked at the push and the pull factors and the, conse- the, the threats that, you know, climate change is posing to the communities. It seems as if these people were no longer migrants. They are, in fact, climate refugees. This is how I begin to actually change something about this, you know, not just talking to the people on the ground to change their ways, but also speaking to the world to actually adjust on some of the systems that they have put in place, which is exacerbating our already existing condition as ground zero of climate change. I couldn't find any much more important life's work than to help, you know, emancipate my very own people from this lack of dignity. Do you think that it's inevitable that at some point the fight is going to have to be on the political stage? Yes, the the political stage always is like, in fact, the solution. Because if we had people who think like the activists in positions of power, we are expecting change to happen. At Mm -hmm. Greenpeace, when I started activism sometimes, I saw this statement that I fell in love with so much, which says, you know, you don't have to be a politician to be a leader. But these politicians, their pen alone is so powerful that it can destroy what I'm fighting for in a day. What if I was the one holding that pen? I'm full of admiration for these young activists who are aware that the challenges they face are considerable. They're tackling them in different ways to iconic leaders who have come before them. But they're still trying to make a difference, be that through digital platforms, political protests, or more traditional routes to power. Things may sometimes seem hopeless, but I don't feel that way when I speak to them. In their hands, Africa's potential is, well, you guessed it, limitless. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit www.trueafrica.co slash limitless or follow True Africa on Facebook and Twitter. Join in the conversation using the hashtag LimitlessAfrica. You've been listening to Limitless. I'm Claude Grinitsky. The Limitless podcast is a production of True Africa. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the U.S. Department of State and the Scene Fire Foundation.